My name is uh, Greg. I'm the Youth and Children's Director here at Sunrise, and uh, I get to be a part of the teaching team as well. And I'm just looking forward to being able to share with all of you guys today. Um, you know, one of the things I love uh, to do is just be in the back, and I kind of get to look around and see who's here. And one of the things I love seeing is how many kids we have here at Sunrise, how many babies we have, and just the, the new life that is being uh, breathed into our church uh, with each kid, and we're just excited for each one of them, and uh, I would love to keep them in here, but honestly, I will probably bore them. Um, <laughs> they have much more entertaining and age-appropriate classes for them, and so uh, we invite them to go ahead and head out to their classes. It's our children worship classes for ages three years old up to fifth grade, and it's just an awesome time where they get to have fun, they can be a little more loud, and not get shushed, and also just hear God's word, most importantly. Um, and ask questions and all that good stuff, and get a snack, which is always fun. So uh, invite them, and also we do have our nursery as, as well. If you have a little one um, up to age three years old, um, if you want to take them in there, um, you'll be able to hand them off, and they'll be loved and cared for as well, and uh, we invite you to take advantage of that as well as um, if you have a really little one, there's a mommy and me room uh, just around the corner. You can ask the greeter and they can show you that. And uh, if you just need some time to quiet your little one or uh, just need to get in a quiet spot or a private spot, that's available to you moms as well. Um, and there's a, you just, there's a live cast in there, I believe, where you can watch the service as well. So just to let you know of everything that's available to you. And we will be jumping into our scripture today. You know, today is one of those days that, you know, most of the time you just jump right in. But if you are new to church, uh, you might be looking around being like, what's going on? Like, why did I get handed some, like, trash that goes in the green bin? You know, like, when I walked in, I don't understand. And, and I think it's funny, you know, we, we just as Christians, if you've been around for a while, this is tradition, you kind of have this in mind, like, okay, it's Palm Sunday, this is what we do. But then I pull back sometimes and I think about it, I'm like, this is a weird thing, right? This is, can we admit that this is kind of weird? We don't, you know, normally get handed uh, this kind of thing when you just go into random buildings. Um, but, you know, there's such a deep history, a, a deep understanding of why we do this and why we join in this celebration of Palm Sunday. Because uh, we know, as uh, Jonathan was saying, the truth behind it. And I want to actually walk us through that scripture. So we're going to be jumping in right at the beginning from to Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 35 through 44. And I want to just hit on what this celebration is really about, what the story is behind this celebration. And this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, they brought, they brought it to Jesus, it being a colt or a donkey. Uh, they threw their coats over the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near uh, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you 
and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This is Jesus coming into that city. And, uh, you know, uh, as Jonathan pointed out, the, there's many people who are praising God. They are celebrating God. They're, they're celebrating Jesus. They're like, this is it. This is the guy. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This, we, I, we think we get it. We think we know what he's coming here to do. And uh, as, as, again, Jonathan pointed out, the, the traditional thought of m- many of the, the Jewish people at that time was that, that he was going to be a king like David, a conquering king. Da- David was a very uh, war king. Like he went out and he conquered things. He, he fought battles. He won wars. If you want to like get a, like a great action flick going, like read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, all the things that King David do. It's very like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings-esque, you know, very big battles. And it's really cool. That was actually the first book of the Bible I read when I first became a Christian was 1 Samuel. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Uh, and then I got, you know, to Chronicles and stuff, and I was like, oh, it kind of calmed down a little bit. Got it. Uh, but they thought Jesus was going to be like that, this war king, this guy who's coming in. And so they are celebrating, and when they, what they're seeing is that this is going to be the next King David. He's going to restore Jerusalem to the powerhouse that they once were, because at the moment, they aren't that. They are actually captured by Rome. They're under Rome's authority, and so they're not really happy with their status in the world. And so they're thinking that Jesus is going to come in. He's going to restore us to glory, and everything's going to be great. And even uh, the disciple John points out that they uh, had a limited knowledge of what Jesus was doing here. The fact that uh, he was coming in, and they were like, we were celebrating, but we really didn't understand why we were celebrating, not until... He ascended. It says that first, we, the disciples, did not understand what was happening until Jesus was raised, that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy. It says it was cool, but we didn't really get the whole picture. We read also in verses 41 and 44 that Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and he has sadness in his heart. He has sadness, and he, and he kind of mourns for a moment, at moment as he walks into it because he understands that they don't truly understand what he's doing, why he's there. They don't understand who he is or what the cost is going to be to truly bring the new Jerusalem to earth. It's going to take great sacrifice on God's part, and honestly, it's going to take a lot of hardship for Jerusalem before they're ready to hear from God in that way, to understand who he is. And so he starts to prophesy over them, in fact, where he says, you know, that the great destruction is going to come onto this town. And this actually won't happen until 40 years after his death and resurrection. The, the, this prophecy will come into play. And so he's saying, hey, you're going to go through some hard things in life, Jerusalem, before you're really ready to understand who I am, where you're really going to start to understand that I was the Messiah, But I think he's also preaching beyond that moment. I think he's not just saying, hey, in 40 years, you're going to go through a hard time. I think he's also saying, you know, it's going to take generations and generations before you guys really start to unpack everything that I am, everyone to know who I am. To bring the new Jerusalem, you would have to 
if you would understand who I am, it would spare you all the pain that you're going to go through. That I'm going to bring you this new Jerusalem, but honestly, it's not going to happen until Revelation 21, which is where we're going to have our main text today. It's going to take until that moment to really unpack, to really start to grasp this new kingdom to come, this new Jerusalem, this new creation that he has for us. And so that's going to be our main text today is we're going to be in Revelation 21. And as we get there, I want to invite you to be thinking of Palm Sunday and how it actually connects to Revelation 21. It's really cool. I've been excited about it since Russ was like, would you preach this day? And I was like, yeah, this looks awesome. Um, And so uh, you're going to see some lines that are going to connect back and forth from Palm Sunday to what Jesus was doing here in Luke to what is happening in 21. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 8 first, and then we're going to get to the end as well. But I invite you to read along with me as we, uh, we dive into this. It's Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But... The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will become, they will be considered, or sorry, they will be consigned to the fury lake, the burning sulfur. This is the second death. So over the last several weeks. We've been talking a lot about, we've been going through Revelation, and we've been hearing all about all the things it's going to take for us to understand who God is and the majesty of heaven. And it's been all about how there's going to take much judgment. There's going to be many plagues. There's going to be a lot of crazy stuff happening. And through that process, it's separating who is with God and who is not with God. He's separating those two things. And it's everything that's going to take to bring this new earth, this new creation down. And it's going to, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of struggle. We've been going through that for weeks, and if you've missed any of the weeks, it's all on YouTube, so, you know, because we're in 2023, so everyone's on YouTube, so feel free to catch up, but it's been an awesome time of just seeing how God is in control in all those situations, how he's designed it all to be awesome and perfect, and now we're getting to the point where we're shifting. It's no longer about all the wickedness of heaven. It's now God has dealt with those things, and now he is bringing the new Jerusalem, the new kingdom of God to his people. 
And so this is kind of what we're going to be focusing on uh, this uh, week and also next week is this new creation, what God's people will be, be doing with God. And he says, uh, John points out something interesting. It says, John, it says that there will no longer be any sea. What does that mean? Like, I like the beach, you know, <laughs> what's going on there? Well, uh, traditionally in Jewish um, kind of uh, way of thinking is that the, the sea many times represented chaos in the world. They would look at the sea and they'd say, that's an unknown. There's, we, there, we don't know how deep things are. We don't know how it works. Uh, the sea is a lot of times thought of as chaos in the world. And so what he's saying there is not that there's not going to be any actually ocean in this new earth. It's not that we're going to be on a desert or anything like that. But he's saying there's no longer any chaos in the world. We're no longer going to be looking at the world and saying, why does it work that way? Why does life just happen this way? Why do we have to struggle? Why do the storms come like they do? Why, why do these things just have to happen? Instead, it says we will start to understand that God has a plan. And we will be able to see that plan, not just as a mystery, but we'll actually be able to see the intentionality of God in this new world. You know, what's interesting is we can actually see an aspect of this today, in our world today. Uh, it's not that God is completely hidden from us. In fact, uh, when we look close enough and pay attention, we can see the fingerprints of God throughout all of creation. I think that's actually what Jesus was talking about in Luke 19.40 when he said, the rocks will cry out if my people don't. Creation itself constantly cries out that there is a, an intelligent designer, and that is God. Now, there are some that would say, well, this has all just happened to us. That we, man, sure, we sure are lucky that, you know, the earth is uh, the size that it is. It has an atmosphere, that we have a moon that moves around in orbits, that we're tilted in just the right direction, uh, that we have all the elements that we need to have life on earth. That, man, we sure are lucky that all of these things just happen to happen here on earth. There are people who say that, and that's, that's their thoughts. And I just think, man, that's, that's a lot of rolls of the dice to just get nail each and every time to, to think that that just happened, that we're just that lucky. You know, it, it's what's really crazy to me is when you look at how human beings uh, develop, you know, from two cells made into one unique cell, a human being that just keeps duplicating and duplicating and duplicating and duplicating. And all of a sudden, like this, you know, our bodies exist, right? I remember, uh, granted, it was in like my late 20s when I actually started to pay attention to how this works. And yes, it was because Titus was, you know, on the way. And I was like, oh, I should figure out how human beings uh, develop. <laughs> um, I wasn't one of those people who like listened in health class. And so... When I started to pay attention to how human beings develop, I'm like, how does this not go wrong more often? Like, how are we all not, like, missing limbs in parts of our body or have extra limbs? Like, it's just crazy that out of that one cell, things just happen. Now, again, some would say, man, how lucky we are that that just works. But as Christians, we look at those things, those, the way that creation works, the way the universe works, the way that our human bodies work, and we say how intelligently designed we are by our God and Savior. We say, well, that, that, that points to Jesus. One of my favorite things is as my wife was getting to, with, uh, to go to school and learn about uh, physical therapy and everything, she would just come home sometimes and just think, it is amazing that people don't believe, that all doctors don't believe in God. She's like, I don't know how you study the body and not see God's work. 
It's just so astounding to me. So I think the more that we pay attention, the more that we look at creation, it actually points towards God more often. Many times we hear an answer and we just settle on that, that loose answer. And I say, keep digging. If you have doubts, if you have thoughts of like, I don't think that God made this. Well, keep digging. Keep studying. Keep diving deeper into what God has designed. And I think you're going to start to see his fingerprints. You're going to have to ask a lot of questions or have just way more faith than most Christians have. That's why John is pointing out. As you look at this new creation, we're going to see his design of the new Jerusalem and the new earth. And we're going to praise him. And he actually talks about how beautiful it is. Once he sees the new Jerusalem coming down, he says he's trying to compare it, right? John constantly is trying to describe heavenly things, heavenly truths in ways that we can understand it. And he says this thing is so beautiful that when Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem, when the new kingdom of God is coming down to earth, it's like, it's like a bride, it's like a beautiful bride. It's like when the husband first sees his wife to be. That moment where his, his heart thumps a little bit harder, tears maybe well up. And at least in my personal experience, I just remember everyone else disappearing and only seeing her and just being like, wow. And he says, that's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like when we see the new Jerusalem, when we see heaven come down. Everything else will disappear, and we will only see the intentionality and the beauty and the glory of God in front of us, and we will worship and we will celebrate this new kingdom. Jesus says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. No longer will there need to be a separation between humanity and God. Any point, we will be able to live by God's power. We, we, we will no longer have this divide between us, but instead now we live in a relationship with God where he is right there next to us. You know, what's amazing is God has brought us back at this moment to the relationship that he first established in Genesis 1 and 2. He can just walk with his people, dwell with his people. It's, it's a relationship that we have not been able to have since Genesis 3 on. Even to this moment, we are limited today and will not have as close of a relationship as we do then, although we do have a taste of it. He then goes on in verse 4, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No more sin. Man, I have to tell you, as I, was, as I was praying on this and writing this, I was like trying to figure out what examples could be. Like a world with no more sin. And I got to tell you, I can't even imagine that. Like I always have a but. You know, I'm a pessimistic guy sometimes, most of the time. Um, and so when I was thinking about this, I was like, no more, no more pain. No more death. Like when you, when you, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more addiction because God is there with us. He has set all things right. I'm just thinking like you click on the news and it's like, it's another beautiful day. And they're like, well, how's traffic? Great. You know, I don't actually know if there's traffic in heaven. It's, it's the, the streets are gold, so I assume there's not cars. But, but I just imagine this, this world with no more sin, no more disasters, no more chaos. All of those things are gone. I actually invite you for a moment right now in your head, 
Think of what would a world look like with no more sin. What would that look like? If it's a strange thought or if it's an awkward thing because you're like, I don't even know where to begin. That's understandable. Because I think it's actually a God-sized dream. But it's a dream that he's had since Genesis 3. When things messed up, he's been dreaming of this day, Revelation 21, where all things would be restored. He's been working from that moment on in history. Everything that he's done has constantly been to bring us back to that relationship, to that closeness with God. And constantly he's been working throughout history, and today he still does it with each and every one of us. He's working in your life to bring you closer to the relationship with him, to guide you closer to what it will be like in eternity, to live in that truth today. It's not something just for the future. We actually get to experience that as Christians today. God says, I will do that. Everything that God has done has been to bring us back to that relationship. Jesus continues. He says, I am making everything new. He says, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he continues on. He actually starts to testify a bit about himself, Jesus. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I love this because this is actually when he's uh, met the woman at the well. He actually said, this is what I will do. If, and she, you know, he asks her for a drink and she says, why are you asking me for anything? And he's like, well, actually, if you knew who I was, uh, you would ask me for a drink. And she's like, man, you don't even have a bucket, right? And then he tells her, he said, uh, whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up. To, uh, to eternal life. And now we see that. In Revelation 21, we see that Jesus is doing just that. He's giving water. He's giving life. He's giving refreshment. He's restoring us to be ready to receive, to live this new life. And what I love is he, he says this is for everyone. This is not just for the rich. This is not just for the influence or influencers or, or those who are well-connected or any of that. He says this is for all of my people. This is for everyone. I don't care your, your background. I don't care your race. I don't care where you come from. I, I don't care any of that. I care that you are my child, that you believe in me, and then this water is for you. He says he gives it without cost. Although he has paid quite the cost, which is why he can give it for free. But then Jesus gives a warning to all those people who have had nothing to do with him, who have not wanted anything to do with him. And that's verse 8. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexual, immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fury lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now we can look at that and all of a sudden we can get nervous. Like, whoa, wait, wait. Like, uh, yeah, maybe I'm not practicing magical arts, but uh, what about lying? Like, is it always wrong to lie, God? Like, what if, and then we get into like a philosophy class, right? Whereas someone who loves philosophy personally uh, can tell you that not a lot actually gets produced out of it. Um, instead, we should look at and pay attention to Jesus' words here, his warnings here. He's identifying people based upon 
their identity. Like, not just like, oh, this is something you do. It's this is who you are. That's how he's identifying them. He's calling them this because this is a part of their identity. You know, we live in a world today where it's all about self-identifying. It's all about what do you want to do? What about what do you want to do with your life? How do you want to, to live it? You know, figuring out your best life, figuring out your true self, all these fancy words that we have for ourselves. And uh, really, it's just about that, self-identifying. This is who I am. I, I, I get to make that decision myself. I, I get to put the label on me. But as Christians, I got to tell you, we don't have that right. We give up that right, in fact, as Christians. We say, uh, I don't have the right to identify myself, but God, you made me. You are my king. You give me my identity. You tell me who I am. And this is so important because, you know, honestly, guys, we lie. And I think most often we lie to ourselves, which is why I think he can call us liars so easily. We lie to ourselves and we say, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can be whatever I want to be. Well, not really. But with God, you can do all kinds of things. When you start to understand your identity in Christ, all of a sudden that burden of self-discovery, which I've seen cripple kids, junior hires, high schoolers who are struggling. Who am I? I got to figure out who I am. I got to figure all this stuff out, who I like, who I don't like. While this stuff is swirling around me, I have to identify myself, and I see it crippling our generations. And I got to tell you, that's not a burden that they should be bearing. Our identity should come from Christ, Jesus. You are a son or a daughter of Christ. That's who you are. That is your primary identity. And after that, everything else is secondary. You want to be a father, a mother. You want to be an accountant. You want to be a, a, a waste management guy or, you know, driving the cool trucks that my boys wave to. You know, whatever you want to be, that's secondary. But your first and primary identity is a child of God. And we get to live in that when we understand who Jesus is, when we accept his forgiveness we get to live a new life, a transformed life for him. And the freedom that comes with that, no longer having to identify yourself, but simply saying, God, you know me, you've created me, tell me who I am. And he says, you were loved, first of all. You were cared for. You were my child. I adopt you. I bring you into my family. It's a beautiful thing. You know, at the core of all those other things that we can sometimes self-identify as, he says what, what it boils down to, even though sometimes we paint it with nicer words, he says we're cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderous people who are sexually immoral, practice mystical arts, and are idolaters and liars. We call it by many other names, but at the core of that, that is who we are when we are separated from God. We are a mess without God. And what is amazing that Jesus comes and he calls us the true identity. He doesn't call us all the fluffy names that we want to paint it. He says, this is who you are. You're either my child or you're one of these things. You're lost. And he says, you know, if you're lost, if you're, if you're one of those people who have not wanted anything to do with me, then I'm going to give you exactly what you wanted. And he casts them out. And he doesn't do that in a mean manner, not because he hates them, not because he's like, oh, I can't wait for this part. You know, he, he does this in sorrow, but that's what you've chosen. You've chosen not to want to do life with him. And so 
He's going to allow you to make that choice, to be out, to be gone. Again, it's not because he wants to, but that's what we've chosen as people. He continues on, and actually, uh, the Revelation 21, what we see is John gets invited to go and explore Jerusalem. And he's given measuring sticks, and he goes throughout the whole place, and he's measuring things, and he basically just says, like, this place is crazy good. Like, this place is beautiful. He talks about all the, the jewels that are all over the city, and actually, if you follow the little, like, footnotes there, uh, they just admit, they're like, we don't actually know all the gems that he's talking about. Like, there's just things that are just beyond our understanding of what heaven is like. But the main point of what ends up happening is at the end of uh, the chapter of 21, verses 22 through 27. So that's going to be our, our next text. And this is what it says. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the, its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by the light and the king of the earth will bring in their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Did you catch that? It says... There's no temple. Like, that's a pretty big deal. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Now, to us, we're like, okay, well, we don't really go to a temple. But uh, to the people, the original audience who are hearing this, a lot of them are Messianic Jews. They're, uh, Jew, they're Christians whose uh, ethnicity is Jewish. And, and so uh, their whole lives, like growing up, has centered around the temple, about going to the temple and worshiping God. And, and then at some point in their life, going to Jerusalem and worshiping at that temple. And it's been all about going to these places and worshiping God, worshiping God where he has said to worship him. And what he's saying now is when, when the New Jerusalem comes, there's no temple. There's no place like that. There's no one spot that God is. And I think for us to put it in like a kind of a similar place is just to say, you know, there's no churches in heaven. Like, where do we, where do we sing songs? Like, where do we get, you know, where do we do potlucks? You know, <laughs> but there's no churches in heaven because every place, everywhere we go, we are connected to God. We are with his people. We are, it's, it, we are always in that place. We don't have to go to a place to be with God. He is always there with us. But the truth is, is we get to experience part of that now. You know, we, you don't have to come to this building to worship God. In fact, I hope you don't make your, your spiritual life that small. You, every day of your life can constantly be connected to God. And in fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, God deposits the Holy Spirit into our lives as a guarantee of this outcome. A guarantee that when it comes to Revelation 21, we know where we're at. The Holy Spirit's working with you. Then you know where you're going. And what's amazing is when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, when you are connected to the Holy Spirit, then every moment is with God. There's no moment that you're like, all right, I'm going to check out for a minute, God, and I'm going to go do my own thing. He's always with you. And so when you pray, you, God, God hears you. 
You don't have to go to church to pray so that God hears you. Any moment you can call out to his name and he hears you. You can be at the park and you can open up your Bible and you can hear from God, from his scriptures, and connect with him. You can be uh, in the mountains or at the coast or any place and just look at God's beauty and just say, God, thank you so much for your beautiful creation. And that is worship to him. In any of those moments, we can connect with God. He is always accessible to us, and we are given that gift of the Holy Spirit now, a gift that would have been crazy to the Old Testament believers. But now we have access to God constantly, where we don't have to go to one spot, but God always is with us. So have you noticed some of the connections between Palm Sunday and Revelation 21? Have you seen any of the connections? Well, a couple of them are the fact that on Palm Sunday, or that, that celebration, uh, Palm Sunday is a moment when Jesus came to an imperfect city in an imperfect world and brought salvation and reconnection. He brought a new way of doing things. He brought us hope and a new identity. He gave us the ability to do life with him. But Jesus also made the way for Revelation 21 to be ready for what was God was going to fully bring on with Revelation 21. Palm Sunday was, go, was God coming to us, and Revelation 21 is God bringing the new Jerusalem with him this time. Not going into the world to our imperfection, but bringing perfection to us and allowing us to now live in it. The King of Peace coming to his people to bring the new Jerusalem to his people. Jesus was, is coming into our mess and bringing us transformation, new transformation because of his sacrifice. We celebrate then and we celebrate now and we will celebrate then in the future this intentional plan that he's had since the beginning. And what's beautiful is we get a taste of eternity when we celebrate. You get a taste of what it's going to be like forever. We get a taste of eternity when we come to know God for the first time, when you understand who Jesus is, that he is your Lord and Savior, and that he died on the cross for your sins, and if you were just to call out to him and say, God, will you would you restore in me a new self-identity, a new identity where, which is based on you, forgive me of my sins and help me live a new life for you. When, you. when you first call out, you get the first taste of what eternity is going to be like. When we worship here together, in spirit and in truth, you get a taste for what eternity will be like. When you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you get a taste for eternity. When we pray and connect with to the eternal God, we get a taste for eternity. When we open God's word and hear his, to his truth for us, we get a taste for eternity. And very clearly, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we get a taste of eternity which is what we're going to do here in a minute. We're going to come together as God's people, as God's family, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is something that we get to do as people who are redeemed by God, not because of any of our efforts, not because we think that we're good enough or we're clean enough or, or we didn't do any of the bad things that we said we wouldn't do, but simply because God loves us and he has forgiven us of our sins and he's called us to live a new life in him. And if you believe that in your heart, and, then you, and that's a part of your identity, then you are welcome to this table to share in this. That this is one of the most amazing things that we get to do 
as a sacrament of God, that we get to celebrate the past of his death and resurrection, his current work in our life presently today, but also what we're going to get to experience in the future. This is a taste, a foretaste of a, a banquet that we will have that we read about in Revelation, where we all get to sit down at the Lord's Supper, and it's going to be a banquet. It's going to be a massive meal that we get to share together. This is a taste of that moment as well. It's a beautiful thing of the past, the present, and the future work of God all coming together as one. And so if you trust in Jesus, this meal is a part of your inheritance from God as being a part of his adopted children of God. But if you're at a place right now where you're like, you know, I don't know what I believe. You know, I, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm still taking this in. I, I'm not sure where I'm at with God. You know, we want to invite you to remain seated. We don't ever want you to do anything that would go against what the Holy Spirit is nudging you, all right? So don't feel the pressure like everyone else is getting up. I guess, you know, everyone's going to see that I didn't get up. No, feel the, pre- the, the ability just to stay seated. If you don't know where you're at with God or, or maybe you're at a point where you just feel like, man, the Holy Spirit keeps poking me and I'm not sure where I'm at with him or, or uh, I should be giving this up, but I haven't quite done that yet. I feel, feel free just to stay seated. We don't want you to go against your conscience or go against what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. And we don't, we don't condemn you. We love you. And we'd love to pray with you and talk with you and walk with you. That's what we do. We're not perfect people. We just are following a perfect God and believe that he's done it all. And so if you're struggling with that, we would love to walk and talk with you about that. But for everyone else who, who uh, loves Jesus and knows him as their Lord and Savior, we are going to invite you to come and celebrate with us this Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to jump right into that. So you join me in prayer. God, we thank you so much that your work is not done yet, but that there will be a date where we will be able to no longer live in a sinful world that, that just is so wicked and messed up, God, where we can uh, turn on the news and it will just be a glorious day instead of a, a day where we have to look at another school shooting and more murder, more, more drugs coming into our country, more, more disasters happening in our world. We look forward to the day where that will no longer be a part of our story because you have corrected it all. You have changed it all. You have restored it all. Help us to keep our vision, our gaze on that day. That when we're, when we're feeling overwhelmed or depressed or captured by anxiety, to say, God, give me your eyes. Give me your vision. Help me see your dream of eternity. And help us to live today for that truth. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And search our hearts now, God, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, your supper, God. If there's anything wrong within our hearts, please forgive us. We are imperfect people. And God, I just pray that you forgive us of our sins and help us to live new for you each and every day. Thank you that your mercy is brand new each and every day. And thank you for the identity of being a child of you, God. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.